We expect both women and men to make equally good decisions as leaders and to be equally responsible when they don't. But the world is a lot more complex than that. On today's show, some of the unique realities that women encounter and what both women and men can do so that women make stronger, smarter choices. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 255. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show will give you access to the best thinkers, resources, and actions to help you develop your leadership skills. And one of the key skill sets for all of us as leaders is in how we make decisions. And today's guest is going to really provide us with a lot of perspective and also some of the most recent research on how we make decisions in general, how we can do a better job, and specifically how women approach decision-making and some strategies and tools for doing that even more effectively. And so I am really thrilled to be able to welcome Therese Houston to the show today. She is looking to change the conversation about women as decision-makers. Her new book is titled, How Women Decide, What's True, What's Not, and What Strategies Spark the Best Choices. She's written for the New York Times and Harvard Business Review and is the faculty development consultant at Seattle University. And Therese, when you and I were starting to talk over email and the conversation of leadership came up, you made a passing reference in one of your messages to me about having your first leadership attempt being to have led a strike in third grade. Am I remembering that right? You're right, Dave. I did. <laughs> All right. So I've got to ask you about that now. <laughs> what happened Absolutely. in third grade? <laughs> most, most people don't start their leadership experiences at age eight, but I did. I grew up in northeastern Ohio and uh, went to a public school. And we had, like most schools, you, you had a break over lunch and you got to play out on the playground when the weather was nice. But in northeastern Ohio, unlike Southern California, where you are, we would often have rainy or um, snowy days during, during certain parts of the year. And on those awful weather days, after we had lunch, we had to go back to our classrooms. And we had a sixth grader who would, who would watch over us during that 25-minute you know, period when we would be back in our classroom. And we had, for a while, a sixth grader who insisted that when we were back after lunch, we all had to put our heads down at our desks. Now, if you know any third graders, that is a terrible thing to ask <laughs> a third grader to do after they've just had you know, their peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And then we, we had to sit in our desk with our heads down until class started. In any case... I decided that this was unfair treatment, and I had asked the sixth grader, could, could, we do, could we get up and play? Could we at least talk quietly at our desk? No, no, we couldn't read books. We couldn't do any of these things. So I decided to lead a strike, and <laughs> I, I said we were going to go on strike, and the other kids, not knowing what a strike was, they joined in, and we just refused to sit at our seats that day. I got in trouble. <laughs> It was a bit of a disaster in terms of the principal came to talk to me. You know, what, what could the sixth grader do? They went and got the principal, and I got a serious talking to from the principal. So that was terrifying for me. I didn't realize it would have that outcome. The, the good news, though, is, Dave, is that we no longer had to sit at our desk. We got a new sixth grader who was 
in charge of our room, and we were now allowed to play. So in that respect, it was a very successful strike. Oh, indeed. You got exactly what you wanted. That's awesome. I did. I did not expect <laughs> to get in trouble, though. <laughs> that was a part of striking that I didn't understand. <laughs> oh, I'm so impressed that you were even thinking about that as a third grader. I'm thinking back to third grade, and, and gosh, uh, I, I don't think I would have had the capacity to even think about that, much less take action on it. My mom was a labor union organizer, so the concept of strikes was very clear in my mind. This is what you do when people are being treated unfairly. That's awesome. Yeah, I was wondering how you even knew what strike meant. (laughs) But it all makes sense now. It all makes sense. Well, that's that's funny because it it actually kind of leads into one of the headlines that I saw in one of the in the article you wrote recently for Harvard Business Review. And some of the research that you've done around women and decision-making, and one of the findings is that research is showing that we're way harder on female leaders who make bad calls. And the the third grade story aside, it is interesting that this is showing up in the research too. And I was wondering if you could tell us more about that. This is a fabulous research study led by Victoria Breskel, who's at Yale University in their business school. And she was interested in how we judge leaders when they occupy a role that's usually held by the opposite gender, right? So many leadership roles are held by men. So what happens when a woman occupies that role? So what she and her team found was that when a female leader makes a risky decision and makes a mistake in a, in a job that's traditionally held by men, people are much more critical and think that she has poor judgment. They scrutinize her much more than a male who makes that same mistake in that same role. She did a number of studies, but one of them was with a male police chief versus a female police chief. And what she found was when a male police chief made a mistake, and as a result, 25 civilians were injured, Okay, yes, of course, people were upset about that, and, and, and the male police chief lost some competency points, and people were a bit judgmental of him. But when a female police chief made the same mistake and 25 civilians were in, injured, now she lost a huge number of competency points. Her perceptions of competency dropped by 30%, whereas his perceptions of competency only dropped by 10%. So much, much bigger penalty for her. People wanted to demote her as opposed to for him. They were just like, okay, well, you know, he needs to have better judgment. So the same mistake for a a female leader in a a traditionally male role is much more costly. And Bresco and her team looked at other kinds of jobs, like, you know, a female CEO of an aeronautical company or a female Supreme Court justice. And what she found is that people were much harsher on women that made mistakes in these roles. It sends an interesting message to those of us who are trying to encourage women to step out and take on risky leadership roles because it can be more costly for them. And that you've articulated something from the research that I have also heard from many of the women that I've worked with and that I've served in client organizations over the years. And it's such a hard thing to measure and to study, of course, and and outside of the research environment. A lot of times it's the anecdotal stories that, that we tend to hear. What's been your experience, Teresa, as you've talked with your colleagues and clients over the years Do you find those same patterns in the workplace still in 2016 here, or have we made progress on this? It's interesting. So what I find when I'm talking, I I interviewed 34, I did in-depth interviews with 34 women for the book, and as well as talked with plenty of people anecdotally to hear their stories. And what I heard is many women were saying that they 
they felt they were judged by a different standard than the men around them. I actually happened to interview a female police chief. Um, she wasn't related to <laughs> the study at Yale University, but I happened to interview a female police chief. And, and her observation was when she had, when they had district meetings and she was with the other police chiefs for the state, um, they were all men. She was the only female police chief in the room. And it was interesting because for her, Speaking up, she found herself, even if she were just making a, a question based on, on what would affect uh, the, the officers in her precinct, when she spoke up, she found herself thinking, do, do, do they think I'm an alien? <laughs> just because she was the only female. And it was interesting because even though people didn't necessarily censure her, for her there was even just this perception that speaking up was risky. It didn't matter what she was saying. So I think that that becomes challenging for women in a lot of roles where they're in the minority is that things feel risky and comments can feel more costly, even if no, no one directly uh, gives you a hard time about it. But there's that perception that my dissenting is going to be viewed differently than, a, than if a male dissented right now. And the research shows that, there, at least in some cases, if not many, that certainly is true. And I'm wondering if you've done any thinking on or, or seen any evidence on how to help women to make that distinction? Because my sense is when I talk with clients and when I've talked with women about some of these things we're discussing here is sometimes there's not that clarity of like, is this because it's just me and what I, the story I'm telling myself as the only woman in the room or, or another, and, and there's a lot of categories of this course, maybe the only person of color in the room or whatever situation it is versus there's something, there being a dynamic in the room that really is changing how that person's voice is being perceived and valued. Have you found a way that that distinction is drawn? It is a really tricky one, right? So what are the voices in your head and, and what are you assuming? What are you projecting onto the situation as the only female in the room or the only person of color in the room versus what's actually happening, right? And, and as you're pointing out, Dave, those, those two things can be hard to tease apart. There is quite a bit of research, though, demonstrating that if a woman makes a contribution in a room that's predominantly male, it's often not recognized, and then it's repeated by a male in the room, and then it is recognized. And people report that that happens to them, and they're frustrated by it, and, and there's research that men are often given the credit for a comment. What I find interesting about that is that uh, women do it as well, actually. So it's not just that um, men tend to give men the credit, but there's some fascinating research showing that, that women tend to give men the credit as well. Tell me more yes. about that, because that that's, that's fascinating that that's, that happens. Yeah, it goes against what you'd expect, right? And so often men are demonized for being the ones who are <laughs> taking the spotlight. This is a fascinating study that was done by Michelle Haynes and Madeline Heilman. Um, they're both psychology professors at uh, University of Massachusetts and New York University. And what they did is they had people work in pairs. So, And some of the pairs were male-female, some were female-female. And what was interesting is they were solving a really hard problem. So you can imagine this, working with someone on a problem, and it wasn't clear who deserved credit for the, the critical insight for the problem. And so you can imagine two managers trying to figure out how to work out a project that's going terribly. Like, okay, how do we, how do we salvage this project? And um, it's not clear who came up with the final key answer to it. So what they found was when a male and a female were working together and it was unclear 
who had the key insight, women would give men the credit. They would basically say, that good idea, well, that must have been his. When women were working with other women, however, they were willing to take their ownership of their contribution. They were willing to say, well, yeah, I, I did at least 50% of the work, or that idea was mine. Oh, fascinating. So it's fascinating because yeah. it suggests that women are, are disowning the important contribution that they made. And what was particularly fascinating is the men weren't even in the room. <laughs> it wasn't as though women were deferring to someone who was sitting across the table. They were just being asked afterwards when no one else was around, who, who do you think this was a successful solution? Who do you think had the most important ideas? And women were saying that it was men. But like I said, willing to take the credit if they worked with another woman. We've got these stereotypes that men are the stronger leaders. And unfortunately, that, that influences both sexes in how they attribute ideas. Well, and it really also speaks to the complexity of this. If this goes without saying, of course, there's not a simple fix to this problem or this dynamic in some organizations is it really requires both parties to look at the dynamics and the assumptions that we bring and the stereotypes we bring to this. And one of the assumptions you've you've hit on, which is that that sense of confidence. And, and then also, I noticed one of the other words that come in your writing a lot is collaboration. And you point out that women are are seen as more collaborative than men, which we we normally like to think is one of the reasons people like to work for women and work with women. But you also point out that women tend to pay a price for being seen as more collaborative. And I was wondering if you could tell us more about that. Well, we all want a collaborative boss. Everyone, if, if there are changes being made in an organization, you want your boss to include you in that conversation, right? Just like you're saying, we all like the idea of, of someone being collaborative that we work with. And it's true. People perceive that women are more collaborative. And, and actually, the research supports that, Dave. Um, there's research on city mayors tend to seek more citizen input when they're making budgetary decisions, female managers tend to take more feedback from teams in meetings. So women do tend to be more collaborative in their decision-making. So that stereotype actually is, is pretty, pretty accurate. The problem is there's a real cost to being collaborative, at least for women. When women are collaborative, they're often seen as less decisive. My favorite example from the interviews that I did is from a woman that I call Nina in the book. She's a product manager at a large tech company, so she works largely with men. And she told me about a disturbing dynamic in her division. So there was a belief, or is a belief in her division, that women make decisions based on what she called the last one who touched it. Have you ever heard that phrase, the last one who touched it? Mm-hmm, indeed. You have? Oh, I hadn't. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All yeah. right, good. Well, I told her I'd never heard of this principle, so she needed to explain it. And she said that on a day that a crucial decision was being made, if that decision was being made by a female manager, that employees would keep swinging by her office throughout the day. And, and I asked why, and she said, she said the assumption was that a woman would go with the last suggestion that anyone made. And so I had to ask, well, what about the male managers? If the male manager had a crucial decision on his plate, and she said there were no lines outside of, of a guy's door because people figured, what's the point? He's going to do what he's going to do. We'll just find out once the decision is made. And so she said this, first of all, put an added burden on female managers. They felt a pressure to be collaborative. They felt a pressure to have their door open and have people coming in to offer input. But it also suggested that 
these women were not as strong as decision makers, that they could be easily influenced and kind of bantered, batted about by whoever suggested something. So we like that women are collaborative, but we also think that, you know, that's, she's, she's also can't make up her mind. I'm, I'm thinking that as we've been talking here, there's probably a number of things that, that at least some of the women in our audience are thinking like, yeah, I've seen that dynamic happen in my organization, or maybe that's the kind of thing I've been thinking or saying in some of the meetings or decisions that have been made in the organization. And I'm, I'm wondering what are the kinds of things that if if we see these patterns in our not only our own behavior, but in our organization that we can do to start to affect change to become more effective in decision-making? People lean on stereotypes when they don't have better information. So when a situation is ambiguous, we, we fall back on stereotypes to kind of clear up the, uh, what's happening. So in, this is going to be important for women because women have to clear up the ambiguity around what's happening. And there's more, unfortunately, more pressure for women to be transparent than there is for men. So if you're, if you believe you work in an environment where there's a perception that yes, women are collaborative, we like that, but we also think they're indecisive. It's important to be explicit and transparent about information that you're waiting for if you are waiting for information before you make a decision. Um, A couple of the women that I interviewed had great examples of this. So one woman, Emily, she's the VP of sales for a large company, and and sales tends to be primarily men, and it was mostly men on her leadership team. So the way that she would be explicit about she was being collaborative, but she was also being decisive, is what she had is a phrase she loved, which was, bring me five pieces of data. So when there was a decision to be made, she would tell the team, okay, here's my hunch. Here's what I think is going to happen. Here's how I think we should approach this this new sales campaign. But she would then say, bring me five pieces of data. And she would have her leadership team generate the five questions that needed to be answered to confirm or dispel her hunch. What evidence would convince us either way? So what was brilliant about this was, first of all, she was saying, this is the decision I'm leaning towards, but before but we shouldn't, we shouldn't jump on anybody's spidey sense, <laughs> mine or yours. <laughs> Let's get some data. And secondly, she was having the team collaborate on what those five pieces of data would be that would illuminate what the right choice would be. So the team owned it. You know, They knew if once we get this data, we'll be able to make this decision. So she was showing she was both collaborative, but she was also being decisive. And she put a very clear timeline on we need this data by here and then we need to, to move ahead. And so I think that's a nice illustration of how women need to, it's, it's a good strategy for men as well. I'm not saying it's only a strategy for women, but there might be a bit more pressure for women to clear up the ambiguity around what in, input am I taking from whom? Yeah, and it lines right up with that principle of a story and a dynamic will emerge in a situation and in the culture of an organization regardless. The question is, is who influences it? So do I leave that dynamic to the powers that be within the organization or the way we've always done things? Or like you've just articulated in this example, do I do something that actively works to change that dynamic and to influence and and put structure around changing the dynamic in such a way that really moves beyond what might be the typical stereotype or the typical dynamic of how the organization makes decisions. 
And it is. It's so easy for a an organization when you're making a decision. You know, I think Adam Grant said this on your show recently. The boss walks in and says, "Good morning," and everybody says, "Great idea." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and there's there there can be a culture of we're we're supposed to say things that support whatever the boss has just said and, you know, be the yes men and women. And what's nice about this is is trying to set a culture of, I've got an idea, but it's your job to um, make sure that we, we move forward with the, with the best idea, not with my idea. You know, not just paying lip service to that, but by actually asking for, okay, what are the five questions we're going to answer before we move forward? And then everyone knows that if we haven't answered all five, we need to wait before we continue. It's a great, it's a great way to change a culture. Yeah, indeed. And I'm curious, what other things did you see in your interviews that some of the women leaders were doing that that struck you as really innovative and smart and savvy around changing the dynamic that might otherwise have been there? Well, an interesting one that was specific to mentoring women came from a marketing executive for, again, for a tech company. I tried to focus on fields where it was pre- predominantly men to find out how, how women were succeeding in these predominantly male fields. So her name, um, she wanted to be called Eugenia. And what Eugenia found was that, like, in many situations, she found that women were often not speaking up in meetings. So she would pull one of the, the women who worked for her aside, who she noticed wasn't speaking up in meetings, and have a conversation with them about, okay, I'm guessing that you feel you need to be 80% prepared before you speak up. And, and, the, and the female employee would say, yes, you know, I don't feel prepared enough to speak up. And what she would encourage them to do is to, instead of feeling like they needed to have 80% of the information and that they could just wing it 20% of the time, she suggested that they be more 60-40. So 60-40 meaning that they only be 60% prepared and 40% wing it. Now, that might sound like, well, that's not that much of a difference, but she said that it was enough. It was basically saying, I'm giving you permission to be less prepared. Just try it. Just experiment with that and see if it helps you speak up more often. And she found that for a lot of women that this changed their perception when, when they were thinking, oh, I need a little more information. Nope, I'm trying to be 60-40. Let's, let's, let's try speaking up. She said another exercise that she often goes through with some of her uh, reports that are less comfortable speaking up is to say, okay, you have to ask yourself two questions. The first question, do you know more than everyone in the room about this topic? Yes. The second question, do you know everything there is to know? No. Let's go back to number one. (laughs) And I thought that that was great advice because we we never know everything, right? Yeah. Oh, I, I love that because it's so true so many times in organizations that someone, a bunch of people get into a room and the person who sounds the most confident is the person who gets the green light on the budget or the direction forward. And often that's not always the person who knows the most about the situation in the room. And sometimes there's other people around the table who know that's the wrong decision, but they don't have that. They haven't spoken up. And and that actually leads right to one of the other things I noticed you, you speak a lot about in the book is confidence. And I've certainly done this throughout my career. I've coached people on having more confidence and speaking up with confidence. And one of the things you point out is it's not always what it, it's cracked up to be both for men and for women. And I was wondering if you can tell us how that plays into the dynamics of decision-making. Daniel Kahneman is, is one of my favorite writers on this. So Daniel Kahneman is a Yale psychology professor and he 
People probably know him for his book, Thinking Fast and Slow. He's mm. a Nobel laureate. Right? Yeah. We just go on and on about the amazingness of Daniel Kahneman. And one of the things that he points out is that so many of us misunderstand confidence. We misunderstand confidence when we see it in other people, and we misunderstand confidence when we feel it ourselves. We, we think that confidence is a signal that we know what we're doing, that we're on the right track or that the other person knows what they're doing or is on the right track. And what Kahneman points out is what confidence actually signals is that you've told yourself a good story. So the idea there is hmm. if you're feeling confident, you're, you've been able to put all the little pieces together. So let's say you're trying to decide what color to paint a room and uh, you look at the furniture in the room and you're like, well, the, the furniture is brown and therefore I should go with something that's in a, a brown tone, you know, cream perhaps. You've told yourself a good story because you've only looked at one piece of information, the, the furniture in the room. If you looked at other pieces of information, which is every other room in your house <laughs> is in a shade of like blue, <laughs> this one room that's brown, it might not actually work. So it's interesting because if you're looking at very limited data, you can feel, you can tell yourself a good story and it's simpler and often confident people are only looking at a limited amount of data. What happens when you start looking at more information and more data, you feel less confident and that often steers people to like, okay, I'm going to ignore that. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to feel the confusion or the ambiguity. And Unfortunately, you can probably make better decisions if you're looking for more data and, and take in more input. And so we, we should all be getting a bit more comfortable with that feeling of unease that comes with a messy story. Mm, interesting. I'm trying to think of how to ask this uh, as I'm thinking about it and you're talking, because as we've talked about in the conversation already, there's a dynamic here that is certainly there's a contribution that women make and there's also a contribution that men make. And I think for a lot of the men in our audience that I've connected with and certainly and when we've had conversations about this exact topic on how to support women in their organization more effectively, I think that there's the desire to want to help and to support and to do things that will really practically help the women leaders in their organization to thrive and to be heard. And there's also the sense, I think, of for a lot of us as men of fear of I don't want to feel like I'm, mm. I don't mm. want to be paternalistic and I don't want to do something that's just sort of trite or like, you know, they're there, I'm going to help out this woman in my, like, I don't want to be, uh, I, I'm not articulating this very well, but I guess what I'm trying to ask is for the men who want this to change and want to really mm -hmm. empower the women in the organization, what are some of the practical things they can do that aren't the, you know, I'm just trying to be trite or paternalistic of things that will really help women? Oh, great, great question. No, and I think I think you're right. Um, all too often, the approaches that people turn to are are, are paternalistic, and it, they they mean well, but it ends up then being um, something that feels like a, a father granting it to his six year old or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah yes, and right. it's it's well intended, um, but it and sometimes it almost perpetuates that stereotype or dynamic that you don't want in the organization. Exactly. So uh, one of the strategies that Sheryl Sandberg is, has written about for the New York Times is one of at least a, a dynamic that really helps in meetings is uh, two strategies. One is that there's a policy of people not interrupting one another, and that helps everyone in the room. Um, it, it's surprising if you actually 
pay attention in a meeting how often people speak over one another. And again, it's a culture issue like you raised earlier, but to choose for a manager to say, okay, we're going to start a policy of not interrupting. I'm going to call it out when someone interrupts or speaks over someone. And, you know, you don't say that this is so that women will have a chance to speak, right? (laughs) You don't don't announce it that way, but it does change the dynamics so that people who are quieter, which is often women, but it can also be men, they now have a chance or at least the opportunity to speak up. So that's one. Another strategy in meetings that tends to be particularly effective is turn-taking. So identifying, okay, it's going to be blank and then blank and then blank. So it's going to be Dave and then it's going to be Bonnie and then we're going over to Joe. And making that explicit so that if someone gets a sudden impulsive idea and they want to bring it up, they've got to wait until after Dave and Bonnie and, and Joseph have a chance to speak. That can also help for the quieter people in the room and create space for women as well as quiet men to have a chance to to speak up. And a third strategy, and this doesn't have to do with meetings, but this can often be really helpful. Uh, There's a lot of research showing that women um, are less likely to negotiate for themselves, for salaries, for promotions, for titles, for a nicer office. Um, Men are more likely to negotiate on behalf of themselves. And one thing that has been shown to be really helpful across the board that leads women to negotiate more often on their own behalf is to make it clear that negotiations are expected. Now, most managers don't do that, right? They don't say, gosh, Dave, I I really wish you would negotiate for your salary. (laughs) Mm. But if it can be made clear that this is not to specific individuals, but that, okay, when you come in for your conversation and to, you know, your annual performance review, that negotiations are possible. If people know that, or if you're applying for a job to make it clear that the salary is negotiable, then yes, it's a bit more of a a burden on managers to now have more of these conversations. But now what you find is that men and women are likely to negotiate equally. Women are just as likely to negotiate as men when they know that that's on the table. I love all three of those pieces of advice. And I'm I'm guessing that uh, just about everyone in our audience man or woman can take at least one of those and put that into practice almost immediately in order to, like you said, this this isn't just to help women. It also helps men too, who may be more in the dynamic of approaching situations the way women do and vice versa. So I I love that advice. So, so helpful to so many in, in the organization. And, you know, there are groups that are also quieter. So non native English speakers, and that that's a, a valuable group that all too often aren't speaking up in meetings. And so, and creating more space for them to speak up is, is also going to make sure you get the diversity of their input. So yeah, there, there are multiple groups there that can benefit. Yeah. And as you were saying, I was thinking as, as someone who tends to be a quieter man in many meetings, I really appreciate it when there's a facilitator who does give airtime to each person and says, okay, so-and-so's next. And and when you see that someone wants to say something, because if that doesn't happen, I often find that I'm not a very strong contributor in meetings. And so, like you said, helpful to both men and women and and any other reason that you may not normally speak out as spontaneously. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, and it's funny because you and I both make part of our livings by doing a lot of talking. It's very different when you're in a in a dynamic group than when you're just talking one-on-one. So you, you might be surprised at who tends to be quiet in a group. I wouldn't have guessed that for you, for instance. Well, and isn't that interesting, though, of how powerful group dynamics are, is how we may show up in a one-on-one conversation 
or in one context. All of a sudden, when we get into a situation where there's a different leader or a different culture that's expected within the group or or a facilitator of the meeting who doesn't necessarily allow for some of the things we've talked about, it can totally change the dynamics of who says what within the organization. Absolutely. And and the cues can be subtle. <laughs> yeah, you know, you can't yeah. put your finger on, why is it that I didn't feel comfortable speaking up in that meeting? But then you go to another meeting that day and you're very comfortable speaking up. And so it's interesting because you, you find yourself wondering, was it because I had lunch? <laughs> you know, you, you try to put it back on like, what is this that I can control? But often the way that a, a leader communicates, am I, am I interested in everyone's input or do I really just want to get through all my bullet points? In which case, if, if it's clear that you just want to get through all of your bullet points, it's going to be a certain type of speaker who gets their voice in the conversation. After spending the time and the effort you have of researching decision-making for this book, what's one way you're approaching decisions differently now? The strategy that was never a part of my life, that is now a regular part of my life, is when I'm making decisions, I use something called a look-back. And this is a, a strategy, it's a, it's a riff on something that Gary Klein, a researcher on decision-making, and, and as well as Daniel Kahneman talks about. So they talk about something called a pre-mortem. But what I do is something that's a, a variation on that called a look back. And what the look back is, is I, I say to myself or my husband or a friend, okay, it's a year from now. Looking back, I'm so glad that I blank. Or it's a year from now. Looking back, I really regret that I didn't blank. So you can fill that in. And one of the decisions I made that way, my husband and I were trying to decide we wanted to do some travel. And the sentence that we played with was, you know, it's a year from now, looking back, I really regret that we didn't go to, and we fill in that sentence. And what we came up with was Paris. (laughs) And we both were like, why Paris? What is it about Paris? And I'm like, I don't know, I would really regret if we didn't get there, and so we planned a trip to Paris. But I've also used it for work decisions. Um, you know, when people are trying to make a six-month or a, a five-year plan, this is a, a way to do it. Instead of looking forward, what do I want to do in the next five years? Do a look back. It's five years from now, so it's what would that be? 2021. Looking back. I would be really disappointed if I hadn't blank. And that can often add a pop of clarity that looking forward doesn't give you. Oh, interesting. And just so so the point's not lost, the look back is actually done before the decision's even made. So you're you're projecting out into the future to look back. Am I am I am I getting that right? You're right. You said it you said it beautifully. So the idea is yes, you haven't made the decision yet. And what you're doing is you're trying to use the power of hindsight. So you're trying to put your, you're trying to imagine yourself in the future and trying to then use hindsight to figure out, well, what should I have done? And, you know, people often say hindsight is better than foresight. Well, it's true even in your imagination. <laughs> people uh-huh. generate a higher percentage and clearer insights when they're trying to look back than when they're trying to look forward. It, it, it seems really counterintuitive because it's all in your imagination. But there's been research done showing that we, we we generate much clearer picture when we're looking back than when we're looking forward. Therese, there's so much here that you've provided us as far as just not only the context of the complexity of this, but also some really simple things that I think most of us could do at least one of these this week and take action on an organization, especially around the dynamics of 
groups and team meetings. I, I just really appreciate the perspective you're bringing here. And I'm so glad we had this conversation because there's so many people in our audience care about this issue deeply of, and especially wanting to see more and more women in leadership and organizations. And I think that this is such a key part of it. So I really appreciate all the wisdom you're bringing here. Oh, thank you so much. I think more of us need to experiment with changing behavior and, and think less about, well, how, do I, how can we change attitudes about women? Instead, let's try to change the behavior and then we'll see often attitudes follow. Therese Houston is the author of How Women Decide, What's True, What's Not, and What Strategies Spark the Best Choices. Therese, thanks again. Thank you so much, Dave. If you are just joining in for the first time, or maybe have just been listening for a bit, I hope you'll take this opportunity to join my weekly leadership guide. You will get two things in an email that I send every Wednesday in your inbox. One of those things is a link to the notes of everything that we've talked about on each episode of Coaching for Leaders for that week. Also a link to the guest, in this case to Teresa's book and uh, some of the other articles that she's written things that will be really helpful for you to get more in-depth in the material. And especially if you want to go find out more about the guest, I would encourage you to certainly do so, uh, regardless if you get the guide or not. And then each week in that same message will also come podcasts, videos, articles, lists, and links really of things that I found online during the week that I think will be really helpful to you of keeping your leadership development top of mind between the shows. And so that'll come to you each Wednesday. And when you join for the first time, I'll also send you my list, a reader's guide that has a list of the 10 leadership books that I know will help you to get better results from others. If you will read just one of them, or at least read part of one of them, it will get you started on your leadership development in a big way. The way to access all of that is to go to coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe. And again, you'll get that message every Wednesday. Again, coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe. And I am going to start doing something new at the end of each episode. Those of you who have listened for a while know there is a huge catalog of library episodes for Coaching for Leaders. The show's been going almost five years now, and there's a ton of great episodes in the catalog that I'm always being asked about of what else should I be listening to, and I'm going to start to recommend episodes that I think are most relevant to the episode that's airing, Uh, and so thinking about this conversation this week, there's three past episodes I think that will also be really helpful to you if today's conversation sparks some ideas. One of those episodes is episode 46 on personality preferences and decision-making. Teresa and I talked a lot about decision-making today. And of course, whether you're a man or a woman, your personality influences a lot of that too. And how you tend to have preferences for approaching the world And episode 46 goes into great detail on that, so check that out. Also, episode 92 featured my guest Barry Schwartz, who is a just a top thinker on how to leverage practical wisdom. It was a fascinating conversation when Barry and I had that talk. uh, Oh gosh, it's been three or four years now, but just as relevant today as it was when we recorded it, perhaps even more so. That's at episode 92. And then finally, we couldn't have a conversation about making decisions without mentioning the talk I had with Simon Sinek back on episode 223, who, as many of you know, is a big proponent of Start With Why. It's so many wonderful 
conversations about that episode that aired about six months ago. It's a great listen for you if you're thinking about how to frame your decision-making, especially if starting with why, as Sinek often talks about. And the way to get to all past episodes is the link in the weekly show notes, of course, but also you can go to coachingforleaders.com and then just slash the episode number that will get you there. Again, episodes 46, 92, and 223. And speaking of episodes, next week's show is our monthly question and answer show. Bonnie and I sit down and get together and talk about the questions that have come in over the last month or so and offer our perspective and resources and guidance. If you would like to have your question uh, considered for one of those future Q&A shows, either next week's or a future one, go to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. That's the best way to submit it for consideration for the first Monday of every month's Q&A show. And a big thank you this week as well to Tracy Eichelberger, thank you so much, Tracy, for the very kind review on iTunes and also the kind emails you've sent to me. Thank you so much. If you'd like to leave a rating or review as well, go to coachingforleaders.com slash iTunes. Have a fabulous week and Bonnie and I will see you next Monday. Take care.